Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm one of your team of hosts, Rob Lawrence, and welcome back. And today we're going to discuss the consensus standard for evidence integration into EMS education and high stakes testing. Already a mouthful, I know, but actually we're going to break it down into parts and have an amazing discussion. And to help us do that is uh, the guest host of the week, and that is none other than our medical director, Dr. Maya Dorsett. How are you, Maya? I'm great, Rob. How are you? Oh, on top of the world. So, Rob, have you ever had a student or a learner or anybody say to you or ask the question, is this on the test? I think that's one of those uh, no-brainers, isn't it? It's always asked. Yeah. And I think um, that is a common question that educators get, you know, like, is this going to be on the test? And I think certainly at the national level, uh, the national registry, as well as our high stakes exams, sometimes we're saying like, is this going to be on the test? And I think those of us who are educators sometimes cringe every time we get that question because our goal is, you know, is this important for patient care? And I think what we're going to talk about today is how are we going to sort of merge those two things so that what is on the test really is a reflection of what is best for patients. And so I would like to have our guests introduce themselves um, because they were all authors on this, I think, really important paper uh, for EMS educators and EMS clinicians and future EMS clinicians to be aware of. Um, So if you would all introduce yourselves, uh, that would be wonderful. Thanks, Maya. My name's Chris Gage. I was the first first author on this paper. Um, I am currently an EMS research fellow for the National Registry. I started last year. My background is started in EMS in 2003. I've worked in North Carolina as a paramedic on the ground truck. I've worked on flight, helicopter, critical care transport. Um, uh, In 2014, I started as a full-time educator. And just recently, before actually coming up here, I did about a six-month stand as a program director and a division chair for an EMS education program at a community college in North Carolina as well. I can see how this was an area of interest for you based on your experience. Yes, most definitely. Uh, definitely uh, something that was, um, as soon as Osh presented this to me, it was uh, well taken. Hi, everybody. My name is Osh Panchal. I uh, wear a bunch of hats, just like all of you all that out there. I am an EM and EMS physician. I'm a professor of emergency medicine at The Ohio State University. Thank you for the 10 cents. And last but not least, I have the pleasure of being the research and fellowship director for the National Registry. So I spent a lot of time thinking and uh, just focusing on education and how we are doing um, what we do in the pre-hospital setting. So with that in mind, I'm also a medical director of a large uh, third service EMS agency. Great. And last but definitely not least, uh, Kim McKenna. Hi there. Uh, Well, I am a semi-retired paramedic educator and currently teaching still for NEMSI in their uh, Educator One 
program, uh, still teaching in several EMS programs, and serving on the board of the National Registry of EMTs and on the COAEMSP board as well as the PCRF advisory board, and writing in EMS, uh, that I think I'll be writing in EMS until I die. (laughs) So that's it for me. So I think the place to start is always the why. And when I think about this, behind every study, there's usually a why um, or a problem to be solved. So why was this study or project undertaken? What problem was it trying to solve? I think one of the biggest challenges that we have is I think we all recognize that there is an exponential increase in the scientific literature that's out there. Like, Like what we produce as humans when it comes to new knowledge is unbelievable. Now, here's the crazy part. As EMS clinicians, we are faced with, with information from like 16 different specialties, every from, everywhere from neurosurgery to the American Heart Association, our interventional cardiologists, to our own EMS physicians. Everyone's producing data And then you get tacked on that neonatal resuscitation or that OB. And so now the plethora of information that you're faced with is this laundry list of random pieces that we have to put together. So now I I give you that and I grant you that big, big hunk of mass of things, but I don't know what parts of that is actually junk versus good stuff that I actually should pay attention to. So what do I teach? What do I test? What, what do I really need to know going back to what Maya suggested at the beginning? And so we're lucky because we, we do have organizations that we've formed to actually start looking at this from the pre-hospital side of things. The pre-hospital guidelines consortium, which is a, a national organization, which has medical and EMS organizations who are all interested in pre-hospital guidelines, got together and started saying, hey, what is the quality of stuff out there? And so they started assessing the quality and started publishing around this space. And when this literature came out and is published in uh, pre-hospital emergency care, the question now is, now that we know what the quality of evidence of a lot of these different things is, we need a mechanism to integrate this good stuff, piece things out, and put them into our educational frameworks, where it may be education or credentialing. And that was kind of what drove us uh, to start talking about this or even thinking about us. <clears throat> I would just say also, you know, it. Um, we know that anytime that evidence is released, it takes a long time for it to go from that really great research paper and translate into our practice in EMS. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of evidence that shows that. I mean, uh, Elliot Carhart, like back in... 2014 published a paper that said that as of 2014, so four years after those 2010 guidelines were published, still over half of the um, patients who were non-critical chest pain patients who had an SpO2 of 94 or greater were still getting oxygen. So that just shows you that it takes forever for that knowledge to get translated. So if we can make that really great knowledge visible to educators, then we're hoping that that can speed the knowledge translation. And I think that coupled with the fact that the registry has changed a little bit the way that they construct exams. They have a team of item writers that are constructing questions. So they become very good at writing those questions and they need very clear guidance that then we can make visible to educators and to people out in the field to say, here is 
what we are going to use to make decisions about what goes on the exam. And I think that that is really the important part of this paper for educators is that here's where you should be looking for the evidence first. And here's why you really can't rely on those lower sources of evidence. And as Kim said, one of those lowest sources of evidence um, from an educator side is actually a textbook. So when an educator is giving information to their students in the class, this textbook is like the document that the students are focusing on, they're reading from. And then when, you know, this evidence is getting integrated into the education source, the textbook is really a slow source for this information to be put into. And so for an educator standpoint, you know, they need some kind of mechanism to be able to understand where they're going to get this, uh, this, this information from that's not in a textbook. That's a great point, Chris. You know, uh, textbooks are typically on a five-year revision cycle. And so once it gets into that sort of final pages form, then really what's in that book isn't going to change for five years. And this, this paper points out, you know, just how quickly evidence is being generated now. And so it's impossible, you know, inevitably you just finish a book and you go, Oh, dang, I wish that this had been, you know, available to me before this book came out. And so that's going to be incumbent upon the educators to be able to keep up with not only what's in the textbook, and we know they're not even keeping up some of them. I shouldn't say everyone, but some educators aren't even keeping up with what's in the textbook. I can remember back in before 2000, and uh, we were teaching about new spinal immobilization evidence that was coming out. And then trying to integrate it in the Firebase system that I was in, you know, up until 2006. But it, you know, some things are really hard for us to change. And it's up to the educators to really sort of be on the, on the leading edge of that change, I think. Probably one last thought is, uh, I think conceptually, when we think about the impact of clinical care, so as I'm, I'm putting, on, putting on my medical director hat for two seconds, we recognize there are some trials which come out which are game changers and that we're suddenly having this great impact on outcomes on patients. If we're looking at an agenda of five years, four years, three years to save one or two more lives that we can clearly save, that I mean, we, we're probably not where we need to be. And I think this paper helps start addressing those concerns. Just to prove that I've read the paper, everybody, that uh, in terms of terms of quality, the uh, the academic research, the, the controlled studies are at the high end of evidence, and the podcast is actually a low-quality piece of evidence, and we're broadcasting this via the podcast. However, I continue to read to say, of course, in disseminating the information, the podcast is a very important tool. So we're up there, we're down there, we're up there. Now, the good news about EMS in the last maybe five to 10 years, certainly five years, is the explosion in research. And it's sort of going to come back to the point about uh, peer review, about control trials, control studies, etc. Is There's now more than I've certainly ever seen before, and I've been doing this for <clears throat> years now. And so that means that this cycle is going to have to get more slick and more efficient as new stuff is coming forward. When I, when I think about this and where we've relied on updating knowledge, right, I think we've put a lot on, for example, updating of protocols. 
And then we look and we're like, oh, people aren't compliant with these protocols or they're not engaged in these protocols. But we haven't necessarily, we said we're going to change the culture um, or sorry, we're going to change the protocols, but we've done it without sort of thinking about changing the culture around sort of lifelong learning and saying what we do today is actually not necessarily best practice. And I'm going to continually be revising based on sort of data and new evidence. I think that the power of this is that we are now engaging the educators um, as a force for sort of culture change, as well as moving clinical care. I think in the past, very often people say, you know, they had those sort of two different standards. Okay, like, this is what I'm going to teach you. This is potentially in the paper. And then I'm going to teach you what's going to be on the test. Right. And I'm going to teach you what the right answer is there. And that always sort of made me sick to my stomach. Right. Like, because... And then sometimes they say, well, there's not enough room in your brain to teach you the best practice, but I need to make sure that you pass the test. I'm going to teach you what's on the on the test. And I think that that is not creating a system of care where every different component of the EMS system, whether or not it be medical oversight and protocol development, whether or not it be quality improvement, and then education, right, which is our key inflow and our continuing education around competency is continually geared towards aligning that with best practice. So the answer to there's not a division of what's on the test and what's on best what's best practice, right? Th- those two things are one in the same as they should be. Um, and this, just like Rob said, as things accelerate with time and the growth of knowledge accelerates, you need a system in place, right? Like a transparent system that produces the result of best evidence being taught initially. Um, and that's why when this paper came out, when I heard about this project and this paper came out to me, I was like, this is one of the most exciting, important things to be happening for EMS education. Um, because that sort of sick to my stomach feeling every time that was that disconnect. Uh, I think this is going to deal with that. It'll take a little time, uh, but it will. So I did say in that little diatribe, right, that I think it's important that the process of evidence integration is transparent. And I would like to get your thoughts as authors on this paper, which is about, I think, transparency in the process, about why you think that's so important and why you did things the way that you did. I think transparency needs to be the standard for any kind of evidence integration into any uh, education system. Uh, You know, we need to understand what our standards are in the first place. Like, what is the quality of standard that we are trying to set out there? Um, Just like when uh, publications get published, let's use the uh, Mr. Clean in 2015. Um, It was put out there for large vessel occlusion, uh, but there was really no process in what was going to be done in high stakes testing or in the education on the on the on the educator side. How are we going to integrate this information? How are we going to um, wh- what's what's the process of when the student says this is going to be on the test? I don't know if it's going to be on the test or not. This is the newest evidence. You should probably know it, you know. But then again, like you said, they come back and they say, "Well, I heard this on a podcast. I heard this on this." You know, like well you probably shouldn't listen to that as much. You know, you probably should go over here and look at this. And the student really gets really confused on, well, what do I look at to understand what's going to be, you know, what do I need to know? Uh, And for the educator themselves, what do I need to teach the student to be the best um, at what they're, you know, at, at, at learning the information, understanding what's out there, and and honestly, learning to teach the student to be um, 
understanding of how to go get the information once they get out of school. Where where do they need to go to learn this information? So, yeah, I agree. And you know, when the the transparency process, I think when when you look at what the pre hospital guidelines consortium is going to be doing every two years to review this evidence, they've made it very clear the criteria that they're going to use to evaluate these papers to be able to uh, let the sort of consumer on our end know that they are quality papers because they meet these National Academy of Medicine guidelines where it's a step-by-step process where they look at the quality of these papers. And then educators will have a one place to go to the, to their website, to the PGC website and be able to look at not only those, um, evidence-based guidelines that they have determined meet those, uh, quality guidelines, but also then those impactful papers that they feel people really need to know about. And then having the registry take that information and integrate it into the, not only the initial certification process, but hopefully into the continuing certification process as optional elements. But I still think when it's optional, it's going to drive people to those papers to be able to at least look at them and go, oh, dang, I didn't even see this. And the other beauty of this is one of the limitations I think that we have, because I worked in a, in a EMS agency for the last 16 years of my career. And one of the challenges I faced once I finished my doctorate was that I didn't have access to a medical library. And so I didn't have access to a lot of the evidence, but all of these papers that are being identified are either going to be open access when possible, or they're going to be um, have a summary on the PGC website. There will be a summary and sort of the key take-home points from this. So just as to add on about this particular paper that we're talking about today, anything that the registry publishes is going to be open access. So even it's, if it's in a journal that you don't typically have access to articles in, um, you'll be able to access the full article. And so I think that that's going to really help also. That's going to help take down one barrier that we as educators have had in the past to be able to actually read the full article because the full article really tells you so much more than an abstract ever will tell you. I think one of the cool parts is that from the educator perspective, it's no longer a black box about what is eventually going to get to the point of being on the exam. So if you find something in, in the PGC and you see that its rating is really, really high, right? You should expect that in the next cycle of updates, it's going to end up where, you, where it needs to end up. If it's a game changer, it's going to be there. Uh, and so that's going to be one of the big concepts that, that ease up a little bit of the, of the stress about what, what you have to do as an educator to pre- prepare for what you need to start training people on. So on the concept of sort of transparency and access, we'll make sure that the full link that is open access to this very article is available, as well as a link to the, the PGC website in the show notes. Uh, but I just want to come back on what Kim said and how important it was, because, of course, research is not created equal. Um, papers are not created equal. And uh, I enjoy at least once a year, I catch a lecture by our good friend of the show, Dr. Peter Antevy, who talks about, you know, the 10 top research articles of the year. And of course, the converse 
here's five you should forget. And, you know, the quality of those, you know, because it was done in sub-Saharan Africa, not that I'm picking on them, but that's just the example on five cases. And therefore that becomes something that we then herald as vitally important research. And of course, understanding that quality and that depth and therefore the importance is key. And I think this is this is fantastic. And so let's go to the break. Uh, as Ash had mentioned, he's from the Ohio University. I think we should all march in formation for the mid-show break right now. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. And we're back. Uh, thank you, Christine. And uh, our 501c3 EMS Gives Life, do visit their website and uh, check out to the good work that they're doing. And obviously, they're looking for your help. So please uh, pay attention to that. We are here with Dr. Kim McKenna, with Chris Gage, with Dr. Ash Panchal, and of course, our own medical director, Dr. Maya Dorsett. And uh, before I hand it back to you, Maya, to take a deep dive into the paper, don't forget out there everywhere, please make sure you like and subscribe. And if you're looking at uh, your iPhone right now because you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your uh, recording from, there's a little check mark. Make sure you look at that check mark, you hit the check mark. It means you've liked and subscribed. And every time an episode of the EMS Educator drops, you'll be notified and you can listen to us all straight away. There we go. That was the commercial bit. Maya, back to you for that deep dive we've been waiting for. All right. So we've been talking about the paper. Let's dive into the paper. Uh, So first, this was done as a Delphi analysis with subject matter experts. I think it's important with the purpose of transparency to say, who were the subject matter experts? How were they identified? Yeah. So whenever we uh, start thinking about a Delphi or something like that. And, and oftentimes, like Delphi is kind of a weird word. Uh, essentially, what it is, is getting a group of individuals together who are experts in the field to start talking about a topic, right? Uh, at the National Registry, we do this a lot. We build task force a lot. And the way we find and identify these EMS experts is we go to our, our, our stakeholder organizations that ask simple questions. We're looking for people who understand certification, education, and testing and give us some recommendations. Tell us who you think would be awesome to help us out with, with this type of evaluation. And so we get get a laundry list of names in. And one of the biggest things that we focus on as we get that list in is to have a diversity in experience, location, and, and of course, demographics so that we can represent the EMS community as best we can as we put together our expert committee. And that's exactly what we did with this study. Now, in uh, the paper itself, the, the list of the experts who are in the, this, this publication is in the supplementary material. So you can just click on that link and just go to the supplement and it'll show you the uh, 
who's who of EMS from, from everyone from Baxter Larman, uh, Jose Cabanez, Deb Akers, Art Sia, Walt Stoy, Chris Martingill, Chris Richards, a huge laundry list, a, a cornucopia, if you will, of, of experts who can chime in and probably tell all of us what's the best thing we need to do in EMS. And that is a very common and, 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 a concise way of actually finding those experts, pooling your stakeholder organizations to find these best people. So your Delphi process had four rounds that each had a different sort of objective and result. And I like to go through each one of those four rounds and talk about sort of what was the purpose of that round and what was the outcome and then how did it feed into the next step. So why don't we? Why don't you actually just take us through, rather than me saying one, two, three, four? Uh, just you know, like you walk me through your call, like walk me through your study. Sounds good, Maya. So um, in Figure One of the table, we actually have a, a description or a layout of each one of these rounds. So in Round One, what the the experts put together a where do all these sources of information come from? Do they come from textbooks? Do they come from evidence-based guidelines? Do they come from podcasts? Do they come from systematic reviews? So they wanted to pull in all the sources where someone may get education, and then they tried to separate them into two different categories. So was it a recommendation for care or was it a primary research? Those were the two categories initially that everything was kind of categorized in. So in round two, uh, they wanted to take these evidence sources that they got and they wanted to put them into a high, medium and a low quality of evidence. So they were saying um, for like a high quality of evidence, it's going to be like evidence based guidelines. An example of medium quality of evidence may be some kind of governmental standards, observational studies, retrospective analysis, or low quality of evidence may be, unfortunately, blogs and podcasts, case studies, and informational crowdsourcing projects. In round three, they took the information from round one and round two, and they wanted to get feedback. They put these evidence, they put all this evidence into one table to see what it looked like. They wanted to get feedback from the group. They also decided that some of this information was informational and educational content. So they actually made a third category for informational educational content, in addition to the primary research and the recommendations of care. And they more or less looked at that in one table itself. In the medium quality of evidence, they actually added a uh, different subcategories for that. So there was a one, a two, and a three on the subcategories for that. Because inside the medium quality of evidence, um, it was just so diverse, they actually decided to separate a little bit. And then in the fourth round, they took everything that they had developed so far. They have the, uh, the table, or the, actually the figure two, which has types of evidence in the columns and quality of evidence in the rows. And they said, okay, now, how do we integrate this into our EMS education system at, the, at a high stakes testing level? What are they going to, um, how are they going to integrate this in a time period? So anything in, in figure three, anything in the A category is going to get integrated immediately. So this is your AHA guideline updates. These are your major impactful national 
um, items that come out, sources that come out, those are going to get integrated into high stakes testing immediately, or they should be integrated into high stakes testing immediately. The others, the category B, the category C, those are going to get integrated in as updates come, as PGC uh, provides their uh, biannual um, uh, updates. Those are things that get integrated in as well on that. So can you talk a little bit about that timeline? Um, because there's a lot of work that's put into developing a validated high stakes exam. So what is that process going to look like as far as an anticipated timeline? Well, I mean, when Chris said immediately, I think one of the things that happens is not that they're going to automatically put, you know, if the 2020 AHA guidelines came out, for example, uh, it's not like tomorrow you're going to see questions on the exam that are according to the 2020 guidelines. But the exams team have the capability to search the database really quickly to look for really uh, important changes that are going to be impacted, questions that are going to be impacted. And then they'll, what they call mask them. In other words, they'll remove them from that particular test bank so that people don't get confused. Like, am I following the old guidelines or am I following the new guidelines? And then they'll go into a revision process so that in the, in their next bank of items, then they'll be reviewed. So I think reasonably, correct me if I'm wrong, Ash, it's going to be a year or more before um, test takers will see that new evidence integrated into the exam itself. No, I totally agree. And uh, being, being a guideline writer for the AHA, I completely concur with everything you're saying, because I think one of the things that we have to be aware of is that some of these times, more often than not, guideline development does not like change the, the, the way earth looks, right? But every once in a while, we'll get that, won't we? We had that in 2010 when we went to uh, hands-only CPR, right? That was a game changer. If we're suddenly thinking about compressions before airway, that changed the paradigm. And then during that situation, just taking us back in history a little bit, the National Registry got together an internal team to try to manage all this. And, and, and then we had to put out a statement saying this is what, how we're handling this because it was a clear game changer from the moment that it released and that the that the educational material from the AHA got updated. In this new framework through this manuscript, that would happen in a structured, clear, transparent manner. It would be fast because that's, a, that's the earth has moved now. And so we need to do something about that. Initially, during the first part, those, those questions would be masked. And then as soon as possible, those would be updated so that that, that, that data can be um, integrated into the test. But when we think about our B category, which will go through our standard process where people are looking at item analysis and looking at how things perform and integrating, we have time to get through those different pieces and make sure we have other experts chiming in. Now, I think one of the things Chris so kindly put out there and, and avoided uh, very, very carefully is the C content, where, where the, the, they're generally thought of as not necessarily appropriate by the experts to immediately integrate in any way, shape, or form. I think I want to just sort of revisit the whole C category podcast thing, right? Because I love podcasts. I do. And, uh, and I listen to podcasts just because sometimes you don't have time to read. And especially when I was had a lengthy drive to and from work, I would listen to the podcast. If the authors are on, I think that, you know, it's going to be much more reliable information. But I would then go and if it was something that I was like, 
whoa, that's a game changer. I'll go and pull the paper. It really alert podcasts really do play a really important role to alert us to new information and how it might impact us in education or on the road. Um, so I think it's, it, they, the podcast is important still, but when you're talking about changing your protocols in a system or changing your educational content, you need to go to the original source and make sure that you are, have the, the real accurate takeaway from that particular paper. Kim, thank you. Thank you so much for saving us there. And uh, just for full disclosure, we always have the subject matter experts and the people that are at the forefront of our thought leadership. And uh, and I'm looking at you all now. So uh, let's continue podcasting, Maya. I was going to say that, you know, taking Kim's example, one of the things that you do there, right, is you validate the information. And then if you can validate the information in a podcast, like, for example, you know, Jeff Jarvis, EMS Lighthouse podcast, I use that as an educational tool in my classroom because he provides a different way to actually digest some of the, the research. Um, and I go read the papers myself, but I think it allows it a way to actually distribute that learning. I make my students read primary papers, um, much to some of their <laughs> sort of chagrin within the, the context of the classroom. Um, but I think that's why it's actually important to acknowledge those as resources because they are valuable educational tools when we're thinking about sort of knowledge implementation within the classroom. I think there's a there's a couple takeaways from the comments that you made around timeline. I think the first is that we've built a system on how to do this. So we're not like responding to putting out fires when it becomes spinal motion restriction or it's CAB or something. And we say like, how do we deal with this, right? We have a designated transparent system to say how we're gonna deal with it. I think the other thing that's reassuring is for like the student learner who's like worried that they're gonna finish their class one day, the AHA guidelines are gonna come out tomorrow and then they're not gonna know how to answer the question the day later. That is not a concern, right? Like the whole point of having a system is to create um, or sort of to protect, you know, students and learners or on these high stakes exam from sort of being unsure in those situations or questions that are not measuring what they're supposed to because it's a period of transition. And I think that's essential really to, to keeping this a validated exam that is measuring entry level competency the way it's supposed to. Well, and to add to that, this is one of the reasons that we've gone to regular peer-reviewed manuscripts for the updates and the research that we put behind the National Registry Certification Exam. I mean, that, that is the whole reason for this. It needs to be transparent. It needs to be at the highest level of data. And you guys need to know upfront how decisions are made when it comes to the certifying exam. It, that's just what it has to be. And it is exciting for me to see the journals actually respond to this in a positive way. I mean, this was we published this without too much hassle. And that's exciting to me because that means that we're giving you the best quality of evidence and at the same time, it's it, people see the importance for its integration. Given that we've gone through what's in this paper and the why and everything behind that, uh, I think I'd like to dive into, dive, I've used that word a lot, um, into the next steps for educators. So now that this is out, what can educators do uh, to integrate this into the classroom, the way that they teach, continuing initial, all of that together? Well, uh, it depends on what you're teaching. So I, in the system that I was in, I taught both continuing education and initial education. And so I, I think that 
what you need to do is, first of all, if it's really impactful, look at what your protocols are and consult with your medical director. Be sure that they have seen that evidence because whatever continuing education you do has to be consistent with your protocols. And then it really forms a foundation for you to explain to people the why of why are we changing our protocols? I think that's really the first step in gaining um, buy-in from the crews is here's why this is important. Here's the research that told us why we need to do this because it's going to make a difference in patient outcomes, which should always be our primary goal in everything that we do in the, in the field. And then, um, then in initial education, then looking at every time that you're revising a lecture or um, simulations, you should have preset sims that should have, you know, correct treatment, incorrect treatment. And you want to go through and look at those and see how can I modify those based upon these changes. I suppose backing up, the first step would be to go to the PGC site and look and see what are the articles that they identified. Read them if you haven't. What are the evidence-based guidelines that they have identified? And read them if you haven't. And think about how is this going to change what I teach? Or how is this going to change how we do things within our EMS system? Because education is going to hopefully drive that change within your system as well. To add to this, I think for the educators, there's one surety I can provide is that the PGC partnership with the National Registry in in the framework of the National Pre-Hospital Evidence-Based Guidelines Strategy is well-established, healthy, and that that, uh, agreement is going to continue as far as we can. So so to, to further substantiate that in the most recent 2022 review has been published that is open source. It's the 2022 Systematic Review of Evidence-Based Guidelines for Pre-Hospital Care. It's in PEC. You can click on it and look at all the data there. But the next thing that they did, they did two phases of this. One, looking at all the evidence-based guidelines. And then in the same time period, they asked EMS experts to identify the best articles that we should read as clinicians and frontline providers. And they made a reading list. So if you get on the PGC website and click reading list, you will get a list of the best articles out there that you should read as an EMS clinician, such that you'll know that this is the best literature out there, that that something is going to come out of that area. And that'll keep you as up to date as you possibly can. So two parts, of course, the evidence-based guidelines, and the second is the reading list. So look at both of those. So last piece on this is you should expect every two years a review of all the evidence-based guidelines and the best literature and a new updated reading list and a new updated PGC release of the best evidence-based guidelines. That serial two-year cycle will continue in perpetuity so that we can continue making sure uh, you guys have the best new newest data. And note that's faster than your recertification cycle. I think a point to make here also is that this is not information only for educators because having spent a a decade and a half with the word chief in my name, any change to clinical practice could also mean change to kit, equipment and stuff. And therefore, whilst we may change the medicine, we also might have to have the ability to deliver it with whatever we need to put on the truck or in the hands of the medic. And so therefore, this this isn't just an educator discussion. It is a system-wide discussion because it could have 
further ramifications and you know I, I hate to talk the word cost on an on an educator podcast but uh, there could be cost involved as well so you know if, if you if you're the chief clinical officer or the chief paramedic or the chief whoever make sure the guy in the corner office is involved in this too because there's ultimately going to be potential change that's just a, a message from those that used to have the word chief in their name you're right that has so it could have so many touch points within the system, right? It could change your your patient care reporting, uh, your QI measures could change based upon this. So you're right; you have to take a whole system approach when you're working with within a larger or any EMS system, and you're making a big change. You know, one one thing uh, as we're starting to wrap up these thoughts, I think one thing that really struck me as I, I was in a recent meeting with somebody was arguing about the concept of stay and play versus load and go. And uh, it was exciting for me because, of course, I, I'm, a, I'm a resuscitationist. And I think one of the cool parts for me in this discussion was that, number one, uh, the, the classic paper is in, in the list. So that's that was pretty exciting. But we started talking about the importance of it. And so many people knew about stay and play, but didn't understand the impact that we have on, on lives saved. And if you think about it, like epinephrine from the paramedic true trial had an impact about 1%. And when we look at uh, Grunau's paper, when we talk about stay in play versus load and grow, you almost have a 4 to 5% impact on survival if you stay in play and don't do inter-arrest resuscitation. That's the kind of stuff that we don't talk about nearly enough. We integrate in our protocols. We tell everybody to do it. But this is now the backing to really tell us, listen, you're saving more lives by staying and playing than even giving up an effort. That's a statement. And I think those kind of things are what will drive so much better integration of care. And I'm hoping these frameworks will kind of help us move in those directions. Ash, I can't help but think, though, perhaps we need to find a different term than staying and playing. We need to find some other rhyming thing that really does illustrate the importance of what we're asking people to do. And I've been racking my brain. Uh, I can't think of one right now, but if you're listening to us, uh, drop us a note and let us know what stay and play should be replaced with, because obviously this is vital. Um, the, the classic ending question, uh, is there anything we've forgotten to ask you or anything you want to finish up, sum up with and tell us? Uh, let's go to you first, uh, Ash. Well, I think some of the exciting things for me is this was one of the first real efforts that we put into building this transparency into evidence and integration. And this allows us to not only sift through that, that plethora of non-specific good and bad literature to find the gems and hopefully pull them into the uh, to 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 our our high stakes t testing st frameworks earlier so that we can hopefully improve outcomes so those are going to be my thoughts i'm going to pass it around the horn i think my final thoughts would be as a previous ems educator just having this again just going back to the students asking their you know where what do i need to know for the test where do i need to go get this education and for the educator i've had plenty of uh you know uh junior educators come to me and say where do i get this information what what do i need to teach uh, i'm starting a new class i don't know exactly you know what should i what should i tell the students you know well a you can obviously go to your protocols in your local area and your state uh resources and stuff like that but when you know thinking about these national pre-hospital guidelines the evidence-based guidelines and stuff there's actually a website that you can go to that has all this collapsed into one area and honestly as an educator 
I never really went there because I didn't know about it. So, you know, I would get a lot of my information from podcasts, from EM Crit and from Jeff Jarvis, the lighthouse. And uh, that's where I would get a lot of my education from. And that's what I would take to the students. I actually enjoyed telling the students about podcasts because that's where I got a lot of my information. So, so having something like this, uh, knowing how the high stakes testing are going to integrate, um, uh, evidence into their testing banks and questions and stuff is really important for the students and for the educator. Chris, I think really, it really made an important point. Like it's, it's very hard as an educator now to be able to distill things down to what is most important. You know, I've been teaching in EMS for over 35 years and it used to be, you could teach the same lecture twice year after year, and nothing changed until the AHA guidelines changed. Now it's like the proverbial drinking from the fire hose. There's so much stuff coming at us all the time that it's just almost impossible to keep up with it. And so as my friend Connie Matera says, you should never teach the same lecture twice, (laughs) that now you should be going and consulting these guidelines at a minimum when you're revising educational materials and being sure that you are keeping up because certainly your learners will keep up and you got to keep your preceptors up to date as well, because more than once we have preceptors say students are coming and talking to me about this thing and they want to do this in a particular way. And, and they, the preceptors need to be kept up with what's happening as well. So the educator really has a heavy load to carry uh, more so now than ever, I feel like, but this is one thing I think that can really help educators and that continuing relationship with the PGC consortium every two years, there'll be a new list that we'll publish. And so I think it's going to be a great benefit to our EMS educator community. Kim, before I uh, hand it to Maya for the close, uh, I just want to pick up on something you said there. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by Prodigy, and we're always on the lookout for the latest and best education and educator. And uh, to your point, we regularly actually rotate all of our content because, of course, we don't want to bring you the same stewed education um, year after year after year. Uh, That said, uh, Maya, I'm going to hand it over to you for the close. So uh, in the other half of my EMS life, when I'm not doing education, I'm doing quality improvement. And right, the central law of improvement is every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And I think our education systems in EMS have been perfectly designed to get the results they get uh, for a while, which has been sort of black and white, yes, no, like this is the thing, thinking And I think now is some of the most exciting time to be an EMS educator because that's no longer true. And this is a testament to we are building a system that is designed to get a different result, which is a result of valuing, right, the best possible outcomes for our patients based on evidence, not anecdote, right? Not on a sort of what happened in a war story, but what is published in a paper and acknowledging that that knowledge is going to change. And so we cannot like, you know, it is absolutely essential that somebody is a lifelong learner, not because it would be nice to be if you are one, but because you have to be one to keep up with this rapidly changing evidence. So I think it's really, really exciting, right? Like I chose EMS because 
I was interested in improving systems of care. I chose education because I think it is one of the key ways that we do that, even though it's not always sort of acknowledged that much in quality improvement. So I want to thank you personally for doing this work uh, because it has made me even more excited to sort of go, you know, teach the next paramedic class because I have an answer for, is this going to be on the test, <laughs> right? Like what's going to be on the test? What's going to be on the test is the best evidence. That's what's going to be on the test. And so these are not two different questions. And I can say you're responsible for knowing best evidence, not what's in a textbook or something that you memorized. Maya, I think we all agree with you. And, uh, you know, what we have done today is to bring together, and you'll see what I did here in a second, is bring together a Delphi of podcast expert guests to have this discussion with us. And so that's been another episode of the EMS Educator Podcast. Remember to like and subscribe and you'll get notified when we are uh, coming along next. But for the moment, thank you to all of our guests, to uh, Dr. Kim McKenna, Dr. Ash Panchal, to Chris Gage, and of course, our medical director, Dr. Maya Dorsett. This has been EMS Educator Podcast. I've been Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now. Thank you.